0: Welcome to I Wish I Knew, a Twitter research podcast. Each episode, you'll hear from different researchers at Twitter as we explore why research matters and celebrate the people and culture surrounding the work. Research is the spark that ignites countless insights, ideas, and solutions. It connects us to the humanity on the platform in deeply empathetic and inspiring ways, and it helps us better serve the public conversation. So, we hope you'll join along
1: and tweet us your questions at Twitter Research.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of I Wish I Knew, a Twitter research podcast. I'm Morgan Block. My pronouns are she and her. And I am a white woman with curly brown hair, currently sitting on the floor of my new apartment in a sea of boxes. At Twitter, I am a researcher on the Revenue, Diversity, and Emerging Businesses team, which essentially means that I focus on professional customers like small and medium businesses and content creators, and also on new ways for Twitter to earn money outside of advertising. Today, I'm joined by my fellow research colleague, Sumia.
1: Thanks, Morgan. Hi, everyone. My name is Sumia Ferris. I use she, her pronouns. I am a North African woman currently sitting in my kitchen recording this podcast. At Twitter, I am a researcher on the brand safety team, which means I focus on making marketers and brands feel safe on our platform.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about all the best ways to sell your research internally whether that's the format that you use to share your insights or all of the best ways to show up at meetings and advocate for the customer. We're super excited to dive in.
1: Let's do it. Let's talk a
0: little bit more about how we got to be here at Twitter. So Sumia, remind me, what was your journey to Twitter like?
1: Oh man, it has been a really long journey. So for me, it started off in academia. I went to school. And I was convinced that I wanted to be a neuroscientist. After a couple of years of doing research in a neuroscience lab, I actually ended up getting a job at a health and weight loss startup. So it was really there that I learned about user experience, and the rest was history. I decided, like, no way, I'm not going to continue doing academia. And instead, I got into UX. I really loved the idea of being able to apply psychology and behavioral science in a way that was applicable to tons of people around the world, right? Like anyone that uses a mobile phone.
0: So here we are. (laughs) My journey also is a little bit roundabout. I actually went to film school. I wanted to be a screenwriter. and. Clearly that didn't happen, but I was taking all these psychology classes and I just realized how much sense that made in my brain. And after college, I actually got a job at an entertainment research company. So it kind of combined the film side and the research side. And I stayed there for a while and I grew so much. And then I moved on and came here to Twitter about two years ago. So let's jump in a time machine And go back to when we were just new, fresh researchers. What were some of the reports that you shared like? Because I think back to some of the ones that I
1: share, and honestly, I cringe a little bit. Oh, big time. Cringe is the right word. So it's funny, the first few research reports in the industry, I can think of one in particular. The report was just extremely long, and it was so, you know detailed about what were the methods, also some of the findings, of course, but so much of the report, I think, lacked the so what. It lacked like a call to action. So my first few years in the industry, and I think this happens a lot, especially if someone is coming from academia, is the reports were not as creative. They were very lengthy, They were verbose and they focused a lot more on, you know, this was what was found, but also this is the methodology. And I learned the hard way, which I'll share a little bit later, about what makes a great research report. But I love that you use the word cringe. I think all researchers probably cringe at the beginning when they look at the reports that they had at the beginning of their career because. You know, you learn as you go about what makes a great research report or a great research presentation.
0: You know, what you're saying really reminds me of this old phrase that my mentor from a previous role used to say, which is nobody wants to see how the sausage is made. Yes. (laughs) They don't want to see (laughs) me cranking the meat and shoving it in the casing. They just want to eat the really great sausage. Yes. Um, And... Yeah, it's just, you know, you think back to those really long reports of that feeling of, you know, you hit send on the email and you hope that someone reads it and then you walk away. And it's like you've just given them a novel length report on the making of sausage and they come back to you and they say,
1: but what does it mean? Mm hmm. Oh, big time. And honestly, I think that's the thing is it's a very easy mistake to make because anyone that is an insight gathering function like research, you think like, oh, yeah, everyone else cares about how I made the sausage. Look at all. And it's a lot of work, right? Like you're doing a lot of recruiting participants, sampling a lot of the ways that you design your research, your methods, and you should be proud of that, but also be, you know, empathetic to the fact that the people who are consuming this, like they've got a lot of other meetings to go to, they've got a lot of decisions to make. And so they're not trying to be researchers. They're trying to do what? They're trying to be inspired. They're trying to be unblocked. They're trying to make a decision. And I think going in with that kind of mindset where you're like, what do I want? people to do with this helps you to just serve the sausage and not show them how it's made.
0: When you're new to research, it's really easy to just kind of narrate what happened in the research sessions and to talk about everything that you found versus pulling out the themes and the recommendations. And when you do that, it's kind of like watching a movie that isn't edited. You just have scene after scene after scene, and you're making people piece the story together themselves. And that really doesn't land well. I think back to a time where my former mentor and I went to one of our biggest clients' offices, and she was the head of research there. We were a vendor, and she sat us down. She said, I really like you guys. I want to keep using you. But flip through the report that you sent me. And we flipped through our really long, detailed, comprehensive white paper report. And then she passed us some other decks. And she said, flip through some of the other deliverables from from some of our other vendors. And we looked. And we just had this realization that everyone else was so much more dynamic and colorful. And it was more of a story. And... I kind of wanted to cry in the moment, but Mm. when we went back to our office that day, we sat down and we just had to rethink how we were delivering things. And honestly, it made a huge difference
1: after that. I had a similar experience. And, you know, what's funny was I wasn't in an agency, but, you know, I was working in-house at a team But we had the VP of product actually bring us an example that was from an agency. And so to sort of like show us an example of this is the kind of inspiring type of report, they had shared with us the type of work that they got from the agency. And it was so great to see that because I think a lot of researchers out there, you know, You could learn all the methods in the world, but what you really need to learn is sort of how do you make sure that you are influential and what are some of the communication strategies and like share out techniques that you can use to get there. And that's the best way to learn, honestly, because as you go along in your career, you can kind of see different people, different agencies. What are their ways of telling stories, of moving people, of educating people? And once you level up, I think, in that realm, that is really what makes you a super powerful researcher.
0: I couldn't agree more. I know we've been talking a lot so far about decks and reports but I think like one thing to call out is that selling research can really mean so many different things for different people and in different circumstances. And I'm curious, like beyond reports, what does selling research even mean to you?
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because whenever I hear the word selling, there is almost this... It's not a negative connotation, right? But it's like, am I peddling? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And am I sort of like being sneaky in how I'm selling this research? But I think here's what selling research means to me. It's two things. It's one, unblocking people. What I mean by that is it could be a PM, it could be a marketer, it could be a policy person. Someone has some kind of decision to make and they're blocked because they don't have the knowledge to make an informed decision. So that's number one, is unblocking them and giving them the knowledge in a way that is both succinct Novel, inspiring, that they can go forward in confidence and be like, yes, well, research told us this and this is why I'm making this decision. And then number two is inspiring people. And that usually happens for some of like the bigger projects that I've taken on where we're trying to tackle something really messy and something that maybe other companies or other teams don't have an answer to. And we're building something sort of new from scratch. And I think that is where I've learned that the power of selling research can go really far. You're going in and you're saying, we are going to tackle this problem this way through these insights and this is what we should do about it. And I think that's the... Really sort of like exciting end of the spectrum there in terms of selling research. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, coming
0: from a background in film and storytelling there, it's really interesting how a lot of what you're saying isn't just about research. It's just about how to tell a good story. When I was in film school, we had to take a class where you were editing on 16 millimeter film. So you're holding the film in your hands and you're actually physically cutting into it and gluing it back together. I know it sounds a little bit pretentious. It was a little bit pretentious. But as you're doing that, it makes you think very, very hard about decisions and how you're gonna sequence the story. And When you make a film, you don't shoot it all in order. And that's kind of like a research session or a research project, right? You don't learn Mm -hmm. all of the insights in the same order that you're going to tell them. So it then becomes about what is the best way to tell this story?
1: And I think from a coding perspective, like in terms of sense making, right, as you are literally coming up with the actual research insights, it is absolutely key to get more physical. It's important for you to be able to make new connections as you're going through synthesis By moving different pieces of data that you print out, you know, and making new connections, creating new frameworks physically on whether it's, you know, a dry erase board, a foam core board, whatever it may be, that's always really helped me to do my best research out there.
0: I just have to say that I am really pleasantly surprised. I'm not the last person who works in tech who still uses a printer. (laughs) It's so exciting.
1: Big time, big time. I mean,
0: I I print a ton. And what I love so much about the printer too, I know, call me outdated, but (laughs) I love just printing out a deck and being able to move it around on the floor or on a table and just seeing how the story changes as you move one slide to another. And I know you can do this in in slide view as well. I highly Mm -hmm. recommend though, for all of you listeners out there, just do this once where you print it out. It really helps to, like, transform
1: your brain doing this physically. And it will help you to make connections that you may not have seen before. And when I say connections, I'm talking about connections during synthesis and sense-making.
0: I'm curious, how do you decide what to do for different audiences? It's a pretty big
1: decision. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think... Before you come up with whatever it is that you're going to create to share out your research, whether that's a presentation or a report, a podcast, if you want to go there, you're really starting off with those questions about like, what do I want people to do and how do I want them to feel? Now, one additional element to add there is who are these people and why do i want them to feel a certain way. and so for me what i've done is i always think about what is it that this specific function or this kind of stakeholder what is it that they need in terms of the format of the share out. so that's number 1 and number 2 this is something that you kind of just tend to pick up as you build a relationship with the people that you work with. you start to see like you know how do they learn some people might be visual learners, auditory learners. I'm a very tactile kind of person. And that's one thing I always look out for is like if I'm working with a certain type of designer or a certain type of PM or engineering manager or marketer, how do they learn and what has worked in the past? And so what I've done is I've totally customized the same presentation or the same report in many different ways for different types of stakeholders. So what I mean by that is I can have a presentation that is, you know, very heavy on visual storytelling from a video perspective, right? If I'm working with a marketer who I know is going to respond to that type of format, right? In the past I've totally written up a I changed the slide deck into like a spec format for a PM because I knew that that was what that particular stakeholder responded best to was you know, they they loved things that were written in Quip. So I, I wrote it in a document format. And I think one thing to add there too is, like I said, it's not just about people learning in different ways through visual or text or audio, but it's also what part of the narrative is most important mm-hmm. for them to internalize and to act on. And so as you're looking at the actual content of your share out, try to align like which function should act on a very, very specific insight. Totally. And what you said earlier about how it is a little bit of
0: trial and error, right?
1: Mm -hmm. You're not
0: going to necessarily get it right, right away. And it involves a constant stream of communication with your cross-functional partners to check in with them and make sure that you're approaching things in a way that, Make sense to them, that resonates with them, and that you are, as a researcher, open to receiving feedback
1: when you have gotten it wrong. Oh, big uh, time. I would even add, like, just assume that you will fail. <laughs> because <laughs> really what we're sharing here is something that will totally up-level your game. So you have to be able to fail, but you will learn a ton. Not only will you learn a ton about other people that you're working with, and what sticks, but you're learning a ton about yourself, because I think you will also Mm -hmm. find ways of coming up with like your signature way of telling a story. A hundred percent.
0: And I think one of the things that makes it easier to bring your stakeholders along the journey is to literally bring them along the journey. It's so important. You know, the storytelling doesn't begin when you share your deck, the storytelling begins before you even start the research. So the storytelling begins with understanding the questions that your stakeholders want answers to. It continues as you're bringing them along to watch some of the customer interviews or making sure that they're aligned with the questions you're asking in a survey. By the time they see whatever the output is, they already know part of the story. It's a familiar one to them. It's almost like the movie Inception. Like, you want them to feel like they had a hand in coming up with these insights. Even if it was just you tying all of these insights together, it's much more easy for stakeholders to digest and act on and feel connected to when they feel like they've also in part come to the same conclusions themselves. A deck or a video, or whatever the format is, is really just one very small piece of how you share your insights. So much of it is about how you show up as a person and how you speak truth to customer needs.
1: Oh, big time, big time. And I love that you said tying it to speaking truth to customer needs because speaking truth to customer needs is not going to happen just at a forum where the agenda is the research share out. Speaking truth to customer needs happens on like a daily, weekly basis, right? Like people are going to have certain assumptions or hunches about what the customer needs at almost every single meeting. I love what you said again about speaking the truth to customer needs because that also involves a lot of bravery. and. Oh my uh, gosh,
0: it is scary AF. Mm -hmm. To unmute in a meeting with leadership and politely, you know, not directly tell them that what they said is wrong. And I tell myself that I'm there to represent the customer who
1: can't necessarily be in the room with us. Oh, absolutely. And I think this also, you know, this has me thinking about what happens after research is shared out, right? The share out is not the end. And I know Mm -hmm. this episode that we're recording is really about teaching you how to sell research, but it's about like, after you make the sale, how do you go about selling again, right? And it's not going to necessarily depend on the next presentation. I think it's more so about Having that partnership, and especially if you identify a team or a partnership that would mean a lot to you, I think it's so important to invest in it after you've already shared out your research.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also about just like living and breathing and carrying your insights wherever you go. Mm. It's about taking them into every meeting, having them in your back pocket bringing them up over and over again. My favorite thing is when I'm in a meeting and someone says, oh, have you heard about this X type of customer's needs? It's really interesting. They have these four needs. And I think, you know, silently, hey, I came up with that. That's my (laughs) framework and they're using it and they don't even know it's mine. Like then that's how I, I know that what my mission has been successful. It's spreading beyond just me. I'm not the only one talking about it anymore.
1: Morgan is the inception queen and
0: I should be revealing all my secrets.
1: I know (laughs) this is totally like a secret sauce reveal.
0: I feel like that, that is a good place to wrap up our conversation, but I know before we close the episode, we also want to answer a question that we've heard on Twitter at Twitter research from some people who are trying to get into the research field. So here is the question. This person has asked, I see different titles at different companies for research roles, and I'm not sure what's entry level. What are some of the key search terms I should be looking for when I'm looking at titles?
1: So I think for this question, and I will speak from my personal experience, I will say that every hiring manager and Every company writes job descriptions differently. So you're not going to necessarily find a very specific list of key search terms that you're looking for in titles. I would say the biggest advice I have for determining what a level of a role might be is to honestly ask that question up front, whether you are... Messaging a member of that team, a hiring manager, a recruiter, you really want to hear the level from them and you want to see also within the job descriptions, what sorts of projects would this role be responsible for? And so some of the more junior roles might not necessarily have like pathfinding research in the job description. But like I said, you really want to be very upfront, be very proactive about asking for the level because I think it's a little bit difficult to set levels, especially across different companies and different startups. And this is something that's important for you to know before you even go into your job interview, because sometimes it even determines, you know, which types of stakeholders might be in the loop for your on-site interview.
0: I'll add from my experience It also really varies across the types of research settings, whether that's in-house, in-house at a tech company versus another type of company. If it's labeled as market research versus experience research, it could also be a little bit different. On the market research side, a lot of times more junior roles will say junior in them or they'll use the term analyst. Another thing that I've noticed since coming to tech is that a lot of companies have researcher one, researcher two, then senior, then staff. This was a framework that was totally unfamiliar to me coming from a market research vendor. So I would say, you know, try to avoid things that say senior or staff at this phase. And then the final piece of advice I'll give, which you didn't ask for, but I hope you'll appreciate, is that for me, I really benefited from working first at a research vendor. I think as a junior entry-level person, it really exposed me to a lot of different types of clients, methodologies, reporting that I wouldn't have been necessarily exposed to in-house. And I think I've taken a lot of those skills with me since I've joined Twitter. I think it's something that is worth considering as you're entering your career. It's not for everyone, but definitely worth a consideration.
1: I think that's such great advice. So that brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of I Wish I Knew. Today we talked about what we learned as researchers in terms of the how we share research, that it's super important to have a call to action, a strong opinionated recommendation section, and get super creative and even get physical with how you make your research memorable, and help build a research-centric culture at your company. And finally, bravery and stepping up to own your voice when you share out your research beyond the research slides and the research presentations is really the way to become a true customer advocate at your org. Reach out to us on Twitter at SumiaNFerris and at Morgan Block E, that's Morgan Block with a Y to join the conversation and tweet us any questions at Twitter Research to have them answered in future episodes. We'll have new episodes coming soon. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so that you don't miss out. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone.